Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. So I'm doing a commission right now Ooh. for this lady. And I want to say she has sent me about 200 photos uh, of her baby. Oh, my God. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. It's a cute baby. Uh-huh. But it's a baby. Yeah. And, you know, there's only uh, there's only so many different angles, only, you know, so many different. I just... At, at what at what point is is it going to be down? It's going to be years down the road, and I'm going some for some reason someone's going to be like, "Where's this photo? Can you share it with me? Let's look through your Google Photos." And yeah, I'm I, going to have an album of hundreds of photos of someone else's child. Uh huh. Yeah, that is. And it's just not going to be a good look. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be great. The other problem is just the act of painting the baby itself because babies have messed up proportions. (laughs) Why? Why do they need to be shaped like that? And, you know, I'm starting to have sympathy for, like, every medieval painter I ever (laughs) made fun of for, like, not being able to paint a child correctly. God, To be honest, if I went a while without seeing a baby, I, too, would not paint a baby correctly. You would just paint a little man. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're like, okay, imagine this. You're a monk. Mm-hmm. It's the Middle Ages. Yep. You got that weird haircut where you kind of shave the top of your head, kind of like a samurai. Yeah, it's fresh. You know, you got the, you're wearing a robe. You're chilling with your bros, just a bunch of bros being bros, talking about Jesus, wearing robes, wearing Birkenstocks. You're drinking <laughs> beer and bread. And, you know, you're like, you're, you're, you're just, everything else in the Middle Ages is, you know, a pretty tough life. But you, you got your buds, you got your brews, you got your bread, and, you know, you're just hanging out in the monastery, and someone's like, hey, we need to paint, uh, you know, a Madonna and child. And you look around at all your uh, buddies, everybody's got beards and those weird haircuts, and you're all like, I don't remember what a baby looks like. <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the photo reference, I'm painting it, and I do, um, I don't know if you do this, but, like, I've really gotten in the habit now of, I do a totally kind of out-of-the-tube red underpainting of a face. Yes, that is and what I do. And that's kind of been, for me, that's been the only way to, to do face shadows right mm. recently. Okay. If, if I'm doing a close-up portrait, like, just, just paint no, no matter skin tone no matter what i just i paint a red face underneath it and can i tell you something an all bright red baby's face with the eyes that are just 
you know, they're not quite spaced out quite right. The the mouth is a little is 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 weird, those big cheeks. I got I and you know, I'm I'm working in close quarters. I'm working in my bedroom. I have to go to bed with this demonic <laughs> red baby staring at me. Oh my god. Yeah. Dude, you gotta call Doomslayer. <laughs> <laughs> um one of my roommates told me it looks like Jack Jack from The Incredibles. Oh my god. Yeah. Jesus. Um but cause cause he does have like kind of like that that little tuft of blonde hair at the top. Okay. But the other thing is he's also all red. So he also kind of is like when Jack Jack goes into beast mode, which Oh um, yeah. I, I I don't know if they had, did, did they ever explain that entirely in Incredibles 2? Doesn't he have like the powers and he switches powers? Edna says something? he's a he's a polymorph. Yeah, some, something like that. He's OP as hell and a like polygon. He is a polygon. He has five sides. That's not a polygon, is it? <laughs> a, a polygon is is multiple sides. All right, so I'm kind of right, and I'll take yeah. that. Well, no, uh, I mean, Joe, a, a polygon is a dead parrot. It. Oh God. <laughs> Speaking ah. of dead parrots, if you'd follow me, uh, have have you seen this part of the museum before? I I know it's 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 pretty deep underground. No, I don't think I've been to this part yet. Yeah. Well, if you look here, you'll see a bunch of gone polys. Oh, yeah. A, uh... <laughs> Jeez. Oh, these poor things. Um, we have <sighs> a bunch of Carolina parakeets. Aw. You know, it's, yeah. it's a bit morbid, but cute. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's history for you. Yeah. Bright colors, though. Oh, yeah. Really yeah, great gorgeous feathers. colors. Mm. Um. You know, the, the Carolina parakeet being a species of parakeet from the southeastern uh, part of the United States. We, we have some beautiful specimens here in the uh, UCM's vertebrate storage area. Mm. This hall in particular is uh, animals that have gone extinct quite recently as a result of human activity. Oh. And as with, you know... a. A lot of these animals, what you are going to see is the, a pretty an unfortunate repeating pattern mm. of settlers moving in or an invasive species moving in. And we lose these animals as uh, as their environments are sort of irreparably changed. Right. Yeah, it's um, it's profoundly sad. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, a lot of them are birds, which also, huh. uh, you know, strikes me in my heart. My, you know me, I love, I love a good bird. I love, I love burps. Well, but Zan, don't birds work for the government? Yeah, birds do work for the bourgeoisie. Yeah. And, um, you know, but hey, I can appreciate them for what they are and i you know i i learned to separate the artist from the art you know that's really yeah that's good so you know joe you're over there being like i'm sitting over here trying to jam out to the beatles and you lift up one of my headphones and whisper in my ear john lennon beat his wife oh and you know that's who you are right now oh god you're right that's that's who you're being right now so you know be less judgmental <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I like birds. Who doesn't like yeah. birds? They are a oh, bit yeah, odd, no. though. Come on. They're ex they, I mean, they're extremely odd. 
the the Carolina Parakeet is is an interesting one, you know, just for it was, you know, somewhat uh, a somewhat iconic bird of this region, you know, particularly in Florida. Mm-hmm. A lot of historic Florida art, if you're really like trying to tug at the nostalgia heartstrings of of people and you want to have like, you know, some sort of period nod to the changing environment, the uh, the change of, you know, more settlers moving in or just things being industrialized, you'll have sort of the reference to this bird in particular, mm. you know, and th- this was this was a bird that, you know, was so common and then suddenly was scarce and then suddenly was gone. It, it was this very, uh, it, it was not quite at the point where people thought of, um, they they really thought of uh, still American wildlife as inexhaustible. That, mm. you know, even if things were kind of used up and, you know, over-harvested in New England, that you could keep pushing into the frontiers of the Americas and you would still have these inexhaustible natural resources. And in the early 20th century, when these guys, you know, start going extinct, you're really seeing the dominoes fall on uh, what what our idea of the American frontier was, that there were limits and people in the as the 20th century will go on, people will become increasingly aware of this. You know, it plays it plays into our own romanticism. It plays into the narrative. You know, the the, the narrative that the West. I mean, I mean, this is this is Florida. This is the South. But right, <laughs> you know that uh, the frontier, the frontier, and the opportunity was lost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something kind of American about it, right? Like the westward expansion and the push to completely industrialize everything but completely ruining ecosystems and decimating wildlife but then also kind of upholding it like i mean the fact that our the national bird is a bald eagle and it's endangered kind of speaks volumes right yeah i feel like that was like that if there ever was like i i feel like america is quite often just a self-fulfilling self-perpetuating political cartoon like (laughs) yeah all of our metaphors are almost too obvious you know uh yeah that's very true it it it, maybe it's why i hate i'm 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 really starting to hate metaphors (laughs) oh it's too literal they're becoming real yeah yeah um uh i mean i think in the case of the Carolina parakeet, you know, the last sighting was a flock of them in 1938. Wow. And, um, you know, that's on the brink of World War II. Jeez. And, you know, there's a flock of them. There were presumably multiple individuals. Right. And, you know, you... Th- there was that period of time during World War II where, you know... Because we had other priorities, mm-hmm. I can think of a couple. <laughs> um, oh yes, there were there were some things on the home front. It was you know it was the Great Depression. 
there were a lot of, you know, other priorities that did not seem as pressing. You know, the uh, the 30s and 40s, you know, we saw a lot of advance of Dutch elm disease mm. killing, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of iconic American hardwoods and a lot of those forests were lost. Right. Because, you know, all of our resources went into the war effort. Yeah, that's dang. Yeah, that is very true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it is just kind of wild to think about how long ago that is, too, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It kind of brings up like the the passenger pigeon for me, because isn't that using I might be so mistaken, but isn't the passenger pigeon used in World War One? Or is it a different kind of pigeon? Yeah, there was a right? really famous passenger pigeon, wasn't there? Yeah. That took messages. I think so. I mean, I don't know. There was, a, there was a level of it in Battlefield 1, you know, that video game that mm-hmm. came out a bit ago, and it was quite interesting. But it, it's just kind of, it's wild to think of ago because that's 100 years ago, and they play mm-hmm. such an important role, and then now it's kind of just gone. Yeah, the, the Carolina parakeet and the ivory-billed woodpecker, you know, the, those two... As as the example from this case here, mm-hmm. those were also incredibly famous, um, and I, I think also a little retroactively famous because of uh, John Audubon mm-hmm. and his illustrations of them. You know, his uh, his prints of North American birds. You know, the the elephant folio, like those were very iconic American images, and now they sort of they take on this haunting quality later because yeah, you're looking at it's it's so interesting to watch people do like artistic readings of his uh, ivory billed woodpecker painting, mm. and people read into it all of this anticipation. Right. And it, you know, it's a gorgeous, uh, it's a gorgeous print. Uh, we have one here in the museum. Oh, great. Next to this uh, taxidermied mount of one. Mm. And, you know, you, it, it's a pretty, it, it's, it's a gorgeous, you know, fairly typical Audubon layout. But you, it, it's now embedded with all of this extra layers of meaning that, you know, he's, John Audubon is going around, you know, going around America with his sketchbook, his right. paints, and a shotgun. Oh. And, you know, is is shooting these birds and uh and then, you know, doing these, you know, really gorgeous illustrations of them and then those illustrations get turned into books that people get to have in their libraries and look look at this, huh. this a magnificent bounty of wildlife that is available. And uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and now you look at those those drawings and you are you're you're haunted by them. Yeah, I was going to say there's something really off putting about going into the into nature, you know, getting ready to draw. Right. You have your paints, you have your sketchbook, you're, you're ready to illustrate different wildlife. And then you also have a shotgun that you're going to use to kill them, to paint them. And mm-hmm. then you're selling it. And this isn't necessarily a criticism. It's just, well, maybe it is, but it is just a bit uncomfortable if you think about it because you're, uh-huh. you're going in to represent nature and to show it to other people. 
And so everybody can experience this, right? And for the sake of science, for the sake of knowing what's out there, but you're also taking away life by doing it. Yeah. And I don't know, like it's, it's off-putting to me. It's, it's very much like, I think that was like part of the reason I was always so uncomfortable by taxidermy, right? Like mm-hmm. the idea that this was alive and now it no longer is. And clearly that is not always the case of people going out and just, you know, executing animals to then stuff and take back. It's, it's, no, there's more cer- to cer- it. Certainly not. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely examples. that's not. But taxidermy also does seem to highlight, at least for me, for, mm-hmm. you know, in my own artistic practice yeah. and just in, as I, as I sort of formulate my own ideas on the philosophy of museology, sure. it does seem to highlight sort of the, the violent act that is preservation. You, you could yeah. look at preservation as a violent act. Oh, absolutely. Um, in, in a Western context, because you are removing something from the world. Uh, like, uh, okay, I, at the, um, at the uh, Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, mm-hmm. on w- one of my classes there, we went through the storage area where they have, you know, they have an enormous basically warehouse of stuff that is not on display since the uh, museum there has gone from you know kind of being a western history museum you know cowboy stuff and has mostly at this point transitioned into being a dinosaur museum oh wow yeah so but uh, there was a point where they were actively collecting more western artifacts um more native american artifacts um, but also contemporary art. And oh. you go into the museum and you go into their storage area and you see how much Western art they have. Um, they have fairly impressive collection of sculpture and pottery, especially as pottery wow. is actually pretty big out West and especially in Bozeman and Mon- Montana in general. But Helena and Bozeman have very rich ceramic communities. Sure, to, sure. To this day, and there was it really struck me when we went up to this one, um, this one you know metal storage shelf, and there were all these bowls. And from being com- coming from the school of art there, and coming from you know hanging out with ceramics kids, the <laughs> the thing I love about ceramics kids is. They walk up to anything. You could be you. You could walk into a diner, and you know they've got the the coffee mug out already. You know they haven't come. They haven't come to bring you the coffee yet. Okay. And they do that thing where they pinch the sides of the coffee mug, checking the thickness. It doesn't matter where oh. you are. They're always checking the profiles and the thicknesses of bowls and mugs and cups. And it is the first thing they do. You're, you're at an art show. You watch them pick up a bowl and, you know, they're, they're, they're feeling it. They're feeling mm. it to feel how it was thrown. And, you know, th- these are, they're, they're very much about the fact that they make art that serves a function. Sure. And I, I had kind of picked up the habit from them. And I found myself having to restrain myself from picking up these bowls because they were now in this museum context. They're, you know, not behind any heavy security, mm. but they're in the storage room. 
and they are arrested from the rest of the world. Huh. That's, that is really odd. I mean, there's something to that though, right? Like the tactility of art and handling the art object. Like, yeah. that reminds me of like when I went, when I was in Rome and I was visiting family and we all kind of went to one of the national museums there. And I, I think he's my uncle. I don't remember what the relation is. We're going to just go with uncle in this case. So we're with my, <laughs> we're with my uncle and he, <laughs> right? Like that's a thing. Like people will just be like, oh, it's your, your uncle, but Joe, it's your friend I love, removed. I love how I've watched you do artwork about your family. You yeah. know, it's, it's clearly so important to you. And Absolutely. I know you love your family and you can't remember if somebody was your uncle or not. <laughs> I guess too many of them. It's hard to keep track. It's, you know, whose husband, whose wife, whose kids, and then whose kids of kids. Oh, my God. Oh, much. no. I mean, I, to- I totally know what you mean. Because, like, Italian families. I, I told my mom I was going to frame uh, and, you know, like, mount a bunch of photographs for her. Uh, you Aww. know, just, like, 100-year-old photographs of people in our family. Wholesome. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to mount these. But, you, you know, I'll put, them, I'll put them on acid-free material. I'll put them under UV protective glass. Ooh. You, I'll do all of this. Please write who these people are on the backs because I don't know who they <laughs> are. And one day, you're going to be gone. I'm going to have all of these photos. I don't know who any of these people are and how they're related. Yeah, (laughs) it's important, man. That's what my documentary was on and still is on because I'm still making you. So I'm sorry. But no, no. You're maybe uncle. Maybe uncle, possibly family friend. Don't remember. It doesn't matter. But we go to this museum and, you know, there's all these ancient Roman statues that are in there and Greek statues and other items and, and some done in the Renaissance. And it's, I mean, they're gorgeous, right? Like, there's just these amazingly done crafted sculptures right. out of marble. And I'm just like, you know, the history nerd of me is like, oh my God, it's fantastic. And we go in and, you know, we're walking around doing our thing and everybody's kind of appreciating it because they know I'm an art major and different things. And so he's going up to it and like looking at, I think it was like, um, just like a full statue kind of like laying down on its side and starts to just like grab it, like to feel the marble. Like physically mm-hmm. like grabbing the kneecaps of whatever's going on and then just like really feeling the marble how it is. And it's just like, yes, this is Italian marble. I'm freaking out in my head because I'm just like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, what are you doing? You don't touch like the museum rules. You don't touch. We don't. This is not the what is it? The the fun. Oh, my gosh. What are those? Not, no, hold on. It's going to come to me. Oh, my God. What is that museum called where you go and touch things? Help me out. Like a hands on museum. I want to say yes, but that's not the Discovery Museum. That's it. Oh, my Uh, God. uh. (laughs) This is not the Discovery Museum. We don't just go around grabbing things. And I'm just like so happy there was no security. I think he did get yelled at once or twice. But I'm like, what is (laughs) what is with Italians and going to grab pieces of art to feel? And I know we talked about this while studying in Italy, because there is something in the culture of like you have to feel the art to appreciate the art. So I get where you're coming from with those, you know, with these pots and different things. Yeah, this um, but but I mean, to to where it comes into this parallel, I guess I sort of see between that, Mm -hmm. that bowl that will never be held again, will never be filled with food. But you know, here it is, it's supposed to be here in the museum, never touch, never use so that it will live forever. 
And, you know, if you want to look at it in a certain way, we do have these specimens of these animals and they will, you know, live on here in the museum, you know, but they are here at the cost of their them being alive. Yeah. And, you know, not not that the museum did this to them Mm -hmm. um, specifically, but just a bigger idea of. Of, of it's almost it it feels safe doesn't it yeah it feels like it, it feels relieving in a way that it shouldn't that we preserve these things and it feels like it's it feels like it's a compromise when it, it really shouldn't be it it if you know if there was justice for these animals they wouldn't mm. be extinct but you know we've we I, I feel like it lets us sleep a little better at night because in our heads we think it's preserved for the future to tell the story of what happened to these animals but you know it's it's not doing anything for the animals themselves because no. those those animals had their chance and um and humans had their chance <laughs> with them and now they're gone yeah it's it's just it's concerning to a certain extent and it is a trade-off and that's kind of the you know it's why we criticize the museums right we an, we analyze and we look at it and see what does it mean to be put on display and yeah how do we continue with that and deal with that and acknowledge it because it is kind of odd you know that it was something that was once living and now no longer is it's a bit off topic but it kind of just reminds me of when human remains are put on display Right. Mm-hmm. And that's used as something to have as a as part of a collection. And it's for, you know, quote unquote, safekeeping. Right. And this idea of storing something so it can not be damaged, but or stolen or taken or, you know, done other things with maybe sold. But yeah, it's it's just uncomfortable because it is like this was something that was alive and is being treated with disrespect to a certain degree, depending. And. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's just it's kind of like, was it worth it? In in the case of the animals, yeah, is, it, I, is it worth I, you it? See, you, you, it's one of those things where you have to look at it in the context of the world that we live in, where, yeah. you know, maybe this mummy that you would see in a museum, mm-hmm. maybe there are some questions as to why that mummy is not in Egypt. But yeah. I think everyone would rather that mummy be in a museum in Egypt or in England or anywhere than, you know, uh, being damaged from a grave robber or in some private person's collection or ground up into, you know, medicine, fake medicine. Yeah, that's fair. But you you have to be so careful with that language because you could very come off you could very easily come off wrong that, well, thank goodness we looted all of those. Yeah. <laughs> we looted all of those <laughs> graves and desecrated all those graves so that we could preserve them because those those foolish people didn't know how to take care of I them. I mean, you, it, 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 it's, we're, you know, we're, we're treading on thin ice here, but, um, <laughs> But I, I think I think most people would agree with that. We are glad that we preserved those things, that we saved those things from the past, um, so that we can learn about the past. Because that's sure. that is, I think, 
I, I, I think we would agree is a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of, it has me thinking too, because it's not just the visual element of it. Right. Like I think I'm, I'm interested in sound in general, but one thing that's, that has me kind of thinking about this is with, you know, I'm looking at these taxidermied animals and their remains um, and the visual that's left over, but I'm also intrigued by what sound they could have made. Mm. You know, because there's just so much of a sensory experience with that. And in the case of I mean, something that's, that... su- that's such a big part of especially like um, the ornith- ornithology and the yeah. obsession with extinct birds, you know, people will because people do still maintain that the ivory billed woodpecker is out there somewhere. And, mm. you know, there are people that come forward with recordings and sightings and um i know uh in the case of the uh the oo a uh a type of bird that um went extinct in hawaii the honey oo there was a recording of one and um then it you know disappeared and you know they would go back out playing the recording trying to trying to find it oh wow i mean again isn't that think about that you know going back out to try to find this bird that's more than likely extinct yeah. and you're still playing the sound of that bird out in the forest like like a like a facsimile of it yeah it's there's something romantic and sad about it at the same time like mm-hmm. it, it it reminds me of like uh looking at Gordon Hampton's work and going in and, and doing field recordings of all across the world and specifically America and, and locations where there's no one. So it's like capturing, mm-hmm. he's, he's trying to capture silence, but natural silence. So wildlife yeah. in itself. And it just, it has me thinking about that. You know, what, what do we do with that kind of knowledge? And is it important to main, to keep recording these things and actually have logs? Because how do you yeah. know what's going to go extinct to next? But yeah, yeah, in regards to that, like in going out into the wild and, and, and in hopes that you will find this extinct animal, there's something too that, you know, you see it with like cryptids, right? Who are clearly right. not real. Maybe, right? But you know, like that, that excitement. But there's some, mm-hmm. there, there seems to be a parallel the, the to hope, that. The hope that, you, that no, no one will ever accept that there more than likely is not a plesiosaur living <laughs> in Loch Ness. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, it's that same kind of energy, you know, that hope and desire for something to be out there that's mm-hmm. put into it and, and there's most likely not. And eventually, I think one does have to come to terms with that because yeah. there's, there's, a myst, you know, there's a mysticism and there's kind of a magic behind the hopes to it and that positive thinking of if I go out in the wild, if I search long enough, it's, it's out there and, and it, might, it might be, but... There's also, well, you know, there, there is, there are instances of that happening. Um, oh. in Australia, there's a species of, uh, I don't know if it's flightless. It might be flightless, but it's a species of parrot that oh. lives mostly on the ground and lives in bushes. And they were thought to be extinct. And then someone went way out in the bush and they found a little community of them. Oh, wow. Okay. And they, they had to keep it secret because yeah. as far as they know, they're the last ones. Um, the same thing happened with, um, uh, this, this, uh, type of giant insect that 
huh. went extinct uh, due to rats being introduced to these Pacific islands. Oh God! And uh, then, um, and th- these are big, big uh, insects. I think they're called like land lobsters or something. Like, oh my God! They're really <laughs> visual, freaky looking. But then one day on like a rock out in the middle of the ocean, like this is, it's barely an island, this just super sheer cliff face. They find them again. Wow. Like imagine if like there had been a really bad storm or that rock had crumbled into the ocean, like that would be it. And there they were clinging on. So every now and then there are these stories that do sort of feed us hope about that um mm-hmm. and also like you know we have a lot of these animals like you you brought up the passenger pigeon that was mm-hmm. you know something that there were so many of them that was what was yeah. so famous about them that they would they would migrate and they would block out the sun just with wow imagine that the noise the 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 light the just just a cloud of birds for lasting for several minutes passing above your head and then the just between habitat loss and overhunting they were gone like that these these are you know animals that were not necessarily initially thought of as scarce they were mm-hmm. really they they were considered close to us yeah you know in um in the case of the great auk we have over here oh i mean superficially what does this look like to you i mean kind of looks like a penguin well it's the great auk is not at all related to penguins but it is what was originally called a penguin oh yeah before you know europeans discovered antarctica or I guess really, uh, well, because th- there are there are penguins in the Galapagos, South Africa, and Australia. So, so really, yeah. before Europeans and people in in uh, you know the far north parts of mm-hmm. Europe and uh, and the Americas knew about penguins, this is what would have been referred to as penguins. Oh wow! They were you know these flightless seabirds, but they were incredibly you know incredibly common as a food source, as um you know people used their feathers for things, huh. and they were an incredibly iconic bird of of the North Atlantic. You know there would be like brands of things would use it as the um as the logo. Like there would be like Great Auk cigars, you know. Wow. It was it was an incredibly popular bird in in popular culture, and then it uh, starts to go extinct. You know, Jeez. people are really heavily hunting this bird for you know it, it as a as as a resource, and what ends up happening is it starts getting scarce, mm. and so it starts getting scarce. Now it's valuable because oh, it is God. scarce. Right. And the last specimens of it were hunted and killed as museum specimens so that someone could have it in a collection. And that that was the final nail in the coffin of it was people seeking to preserve it and 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 to have it for the prestige of having it. Yeah, that's a yikes. Number one and two, just like, oh, my God, can't have anything nice at this point. 
<laughs> I just it's it's crazy to me too with that. Like it the fact that it go it's it's used for so many other things and people take it for granted. And then when it becomes rare, it's not necessarily the idea of, oh, we need to protect this. It's oh, now it's worth something. Or it's worth yeah. more than what it was. Well, you know, they they had been, you know, hunted they they no longer were living, you know, uh in close proximity to the British Isles, you know, that's where right. people for, you know, hundreds of years had hunted them and uh, you know, lived among them. Huh. And then there uh the last one is seen in uh eighteen forty uh in Scotland and then it's caught and killed. And that was it. It was gone in Britain. Jesus. Um but there was one rock left where they could live and breed. And at first it, you know, it was surrounded by cliffs. It was inaccessible to humans. But then in 1830, it's uh, the, the island sort of gets submerged after a volcanic eruption. And the wow. birds move to a different island called Eldi. Hmm. And it was accessible from a... Uh, one side and the colony is discovered in 1835 and about 50 birds are there okay and museums come in they want to have them for their collections and the last pair was you know hanging out on this island in 1844 this is how quickly all of this happens the last oh pair is found on the island incubating an egg the adults are strangled and uh one of the men that finds them smashes the egg with his boot jesus yeah um we're now going to uh read from singayar who um describes the act he was an Icelandic fellow oh okay this is uh from an uh a uh interview uh he did with uh great ox specialist john wally oh the rocks were covered with blackbirds and there were the Gangafergers. They walked slowly. John crept up with his arms open. The bird that John went into the corner, but mine was going to the edge of the cliff. It walked like a man and moved his feet quickly. I caught it close to the edge, a precipice many fathoms deep. Its wings lay close to its side, not hanging out. I took him by the neck and he flapped his wings. He made no cry. I strangled him. Oh, what lovely words. Yeah, really, uh, quite, r- really, really wonderful. Uh, quite a poet. But jeez, yeah. man, strang- <laughs> uh, the apathy. Yeah, I mean, and that specimen is still on display in Brussels. Uh. See, I don't know. I have problems with this. This makes me mad, as it as it should. I feel like, but like, uh, because they needed it for a collection, an entire species yeah. is wiped out at the end. Yeah, I mean, again, this is the you know you want to assume it was already doomed if there were only two left. I mean, like, yeah, pretty hard to come back from that there's there's something like this this is again one of those things where it's like why i'm so tentative about metaphors about the environment and why i think 
I will still sometimes roll, even though I, I take environmentalism very Absolutely. seriously, I'll still roll my eyes at like people that try to make it more dramatic in art than Ugh, it is. Yeah. This is, I feel like if this were a scene in a book somebody wrote or in a movie, this would be over the top. The last two of a species and they have an egg and then some Icelandic prick <laughs> just comes in and murders them. Jesus. The last members of the species. It's 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 incredibly brutal. Yeah. Yeah, I uh that's the thing too. It it feels almost like a movie or a book, like you said, you know, fictional to a certain extent. Because it is also kind of a bit unbelievable, right? Like to me it's like yeah. you think how could like how could you think this way? How could you even yeah decide this and let this fate kind of happen but unfortunately i think that that's the reality right yeah well you know you you look at um i I mean there were so many animals that just went extinct so soon after they were discovered and then there's the auk that was this iconic recognizable bird and you know the the effort to uh to protect it was was not there yeah i mean i feel like that's fairly new right that concept of protection and and trying to conserve what we have and not in a sense to glorify like the change in science and mindsets and now you know now we're good because this clearly still happens this is not we didn't just change in a hundred years. It wasn't just fixed. Yeah, and I think you know, and our our concept of preservation and you know how we how how we try to save these species that are going extinct um, now, you definitely see like a prioritization over you know very charismatic animals. Yeah, absolutely. One one thing that's been pointed out quite a bit is the you know all the effort that's been put into protecting giant pandas mm-hmm. in china yeah right? absolutely and the because the the panda is such an iconic animal of china china you know clearly cares about it and wants to protect it however from you know i've heard ecologists remark that you know the only the only good that comes out of protecting the panda is that people might protect the range, the the wild environments and biomes that the panda inhabits. Yeah. Because the panda is not necessarily the animal that needs the most help. Mm-hmm. But if people are willing to protect those regions because the panda lives there, you know, like yeah. you you have a harder time. Most people aren't aware that the Chinese giant salamander exists. I was not. So, and you know, <laughs> let's be honest, it's a little, I find it adorable, but it's maybe a little harder sell sure. to people. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> as far as a charismatic looking I animal mean, goes. Yeah. It's not Pan Pan. Come on. No. Um, but you know, you see the same thing with a lot of amphibians, like, you know, the hellbender in the Eastern United States. These, yeah. these giant amphibians that are, you know, they, they're very vulnerable mm-hmm. to river pollution and, you know, environmental destruction. But, you know, people people preserve those regions because they're thinking of the bears and the deer and the elk and 
and the wolves. Yes. Which, you know, those are those are noble efforts to preserve those animals. But they they they're very clearly is a priority to iconic animals. Yeah, I think too, because if you if people can unite around something that becomes like an icon, right? Then they're more willing to do something about it. And that is kind of disturbing in some ways because it should just be the default to care. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being yeah. a bit too like uh, presumptuous in, in assuming that people will just go out of their way to, to care and help things. But like, you know, one would think that the rivers, your water source, would be a huge priority. But that's clearly not the case at all, given, you know, industrialization. But, you know, it's not just the wolves and it's not just bears, like you're saying, and deer and other things. It does go way above that. It's interesting you say that, too, because that's mostly what I tend to hear in terms of conversation, especially around hunting has always been a major yeah. criticism and specifically with like people who, who go hunt deer. And, and I used to be so against it and I still kind of am, but. It is kind of unfortunately now you kind of have to because there's no more gray wolves or they're depleting like crazy because of being killed off and such. I mean, you, you look at places where gray wolves have been reintroduced and you realize how big of a role they play yeah, in the environment. Absolutely. Um, Yellowstone, right? I mean, yeah, in Yellowstone, it's very big. I mean, it's controversial yeah. having the wolves there. I mean, that's something... That, that that's a whole other conversation <laughs> for sure um but you know you look at like the way rivers mm. got rerouted because the wolves it's crazy there. because the the animals are no longer grazing in certain areas because they're vulnerable to the wolves like you know they the wolves push out the coyotes mm -hmm. so now there's more um mice and rabbits which means now there's more owls yeah and you, you, you're seeing just a huge shift in different types of trees are uh, able to grow because they don't get mowed down by the elk and the deer. You know, the, these, these iconic animals that we, you know, find the motivation to protect, you know, it is good when they, when they are, you know, sort of a cornerstone of, uh, of a healthy environment. It, it is it is good when you can do that. It's hard, though, like, like one of the speculations that's been made about, like, like the, something like Stellar Sea Cow, mm. which was a an enormous, uh, we actually have a stuffed one right oh. here, an enormous oh. uh, type of manatee or uh, dugong that oh. was alive until fairly recently. Like, this is like an Ice Age-sized megafauna animal. Wow. And this was this was alive until recently, but it it died out 27 years after it was discovered by Europeans. Oh, my God. 27. Yeah. Yeah. It was discovered in the Bering Strait and, uh, you know, been it had been suffering. Uh, it seems like a decline since the Ice Age. Mm -hmm. But then just this final little nail in the coffin to its uh, to its environment Jeez. from you know, people that are indigenous to the area hunting it, but really, you know, the final kick was Europeans moving in. Yeah. And, you know, just needing food. And here's this big, slow-moving hunk of meat. But really, also, then it was hunted because its fat was so valuable. 
Yeah, that is one part of history that I, I just, it really can't get over. Was I mean, this is a bit mm-hmm. off, but still, was just fat with was whaling, you know, mm-hmm. and the fact that that was an industry in order to light all of the lanterns in cities. And you're just yeah. to me, it's just like, oh my god. One, how practical was that? I guess it was pretty practical because they did it so much, and you know, <laughs> what are you what What are you burning? Not whale oil. Well, you know, I guess regular oil's not petroleum's not found yet, right? <laughs> we can't use olive oil. That would have solved our problems, but unfortunately, not. Oh my god! Could you imagine though? That'd probably smell kind of nice if you could burn olive oil and it would stay lit for so long. So you'd be oh, yeah. efficient. No, we just have to try to hunt a species to extinction and continue to do so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, uh, I, you know, there's ones that are unintentional. There's, I mean, okay, I mean, it's hard to get more famous as far as, like, (laughs) human-caused extinction than the dodo, right? Yeah, true. But the dodo wasn't necessarily um, directly from humans. Like, people were not, well, the dodo was trusting. Oh, you know, it 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 lived on on uh, Mauritius and it had no large land predators. So it never uh, it didn't really know to run away from humans. The funny thing is, though, that the dodo really went extinct, not from sailors hunting it, but because, you know, pigs, rats and dogs that were released on the island would eat its eggs. Oh, wow. It's young. Jeez. And because they nested on the ground, you know, this is why flightless birds seem to be so susceptible to this. They nest on the ground. Yeah, that'll do it. Um, You know, and, you know, if something comes across their eggs, that's it. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, but also, also we have this fellow over here, this skeleton. And uh, this is, as you can see, a very large bird. He's pretty big. Quite terrifying. Yeah, it, <laughs> yes. And this is the moa from New Zealand. Oh. And, you know, this is a, this is an interesting one because this is not a Eurocentric extinction. When people arrived in New Zealand, it seems that the moa went extinct quite soon after that, you know. A lot of estimates put it at at the the very latest and you know the fourteen sixties mm. you know well before you know that's before Columbus discovers America. this is long before um you know Oceania will be discovered by Europeans, yeah, and you know this is not to you know, shift blame and say, oh, everybody is causing these extinctions, you know, and to not point out that so much of this is the cause of, so much of this is indeed caused by, you know, European exploitation and consumerism and capitalism. Mm -hmm. But I think it's worth remembering that humanity has had this tentative relationship with nature. And the moa, this enormous flightless bird, you know, there's there's nothing there's nothing else to really kind of compare this right. to. And this is an animal that went extinct fairly quickly oh. once um, people arrived in New Zealand. And 
you know, you see you see this uh, throughout the Pacific Islands. There is a as you know, the Polynesians, Macronesians, and Micronesians, you know, explore and colonize these islands, there is a pattern of the local bird population goes extinct mm. with settlement. Oh, wow. And that is just sort of a, a pattern of the archaeology of the region. You know, but then there's there's pushback against that as well, because in Australia, the... The extinction of megafauna seems to coincide with humans arriving hmm. in Australia. Um, you know, there were giant kangaroos, giant wombats, giant lizards. Wow. And as you know, you know, Australia has changed so much and all of the animals there are so small and timid and harmless. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. But um, when I was studying in Australia and we were taking paleontology classes, we were looking at the way that these piles of bones are found of these, because they are frequently found in big piles. And the assumption always was that these piles are basically middens where ancient humans would hunt all of the big game and then leave all their bones in a trash pile. Right. Right. However, these bones, uh, the way that they're situated are more consistent with being deposited by streams. Oh. Like all of the long bones are all facing the same direction. Interesting. So there's at least a little bit of evidence that these are animals that are on their way out already because Australia has been going through uh, a lot of, um, you know, change as it slowly moves north and more under the equator right. the the biomes of australia have have changed quite a bit from you know it being covered in rainforest to it being covered in sclerophyll forest to you know now where a lot of it is desert right. and there, there's very little rainforest left um just naturally mm -hmm. and you know humans are certainly a factor there humans are humans are certainly a factor uh uh in australia's wildlife but there there is also the possibility that you know we're witnessing earth change and right. earth will continue to change yeah definitely. Uh, regardless of what we want to see continue mm -hmm. yeah and this this kind of brings me to i i think one of my favorite i, I mean it feels dirty to say favorite <laughs> almost to talk about this but this this brings me to i yeah, one one of my favorite animals, but you know, one that is deeply sad to me that is no longer with us, mm. and that is uh, this uh, this animal here. Now, uh, are 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 you familiar with the uh, the thylacine? I am. Yeah, it's the like you know because I won't shut up about it. Maybe. Perhaps. <laughs> well, well, what did what did our professor call it? She called it the uh, the fox wolf fox dog thing. The wolf fox dog. That's yes. it. Um, she would ask me to correct her, and then still call it the wolf fox <laughs> the dog. Wolf fo yeah, even though, it, and then you would always be under your breath to be like, oh, "Is the thylacine?" But yeah, well. <laughs> The thylacine is, uh, you know, it, it looks superficially like a dog. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it is striped, which is extremely weird. But, you know, this is, you know, a marsupial. Oh. Um, the, 
this would have been the apex predator of Australia. Oh wow. Yeah, this is um this is a very different type of marsupial than what we think of. Today the largest carnivorous marsupial left in Australia is the qual, hmm. which is an extremely freaky looking spotted possum thing oh. that is the most Australian animal <laughs> to have ever existed. It is so extreme and crazy looking unfortunately critically endangered Aww. but um <laughs> but um yeah i mean before its extinction in mainland australia from the introduction of dingoes um by uh indigenous people of australia um cuz dingoes Aww. are dingoes are a weird thing in general because there there's <sighs> dingoes you have to wonder are they native to Australia or not? Interesting. And because they've been there for a long time, uh-huh. but they were introduced by humans as domestic dogs that went. Wait, feral. really? Yeah, dingoes are dingoes are essentially domestic dogs that uh, started that sort of went feral and became their own wild population species. Well, not not quite species, but. Some people will consider them a species. Some people yeah. will just sort of consider them a breed of feral dog. They didn't. Re- they really didn't cover that in Kangaroo Jack. No, <laughs> no, Kangaroo Jack. I really think a lot of good. the The best stuff ended up on the cutting room floor of Kangaroo Jack. Yeah. I mean, probably most of. I really feel like Kangaroo Jack. There wasn't a lot of Kangaroo Jack in Kangaroo <laughs> Jack. They must have cut that. Yeah, well, the budget. You know, they have to. They have to pull back a bit. I I'm a I have a theory that Kangaroo Jack probably was a weirder movie or maybe Ooh. a more adult movie Ooh. and then they had to change it to like market it to kids a little more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually. I used to love that movie yeah. as a kid. And I, really, I, really I think did. I saw it once in the theater and then I never saw it again. <gasps> Oof, I did not see it in the th- maybe I did. I don't remember. I I think I watched it on VHS. Like I think Ooh, it's, you had it. On I think VHS? I did. Yeah, I'm like very, po- fairly positive that I did because at this time I was like obsessed with Australia. You know, I had like a kangaroo right, T-shirt, yeah. which was the coolest design ever. It was like a minimalist line work that we found in yeah, a thrift store. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I was just like obsessed with this weird, you know, movie as a kid. I thought it was funny, and then I, I'm scared to watch it again. <laughs> I'm gonna do that though. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna sit down and watch Kangaroo Jack again and really, really hate myself because I I know it's not gonna be good. Okay. Well, well. I mean, God, maybe we maybe yeah. we should watch that. I feel like I feel like we would have a good conversation about Kangaroo. I think so. Jack if we, saw I think it. we would. I mean, because I I okay. So I also I mean part of part of my obsession with the thylacine <laughs> is also part of like you know my obsession with australian animals in general when i was in like middle school and stuff you know the thylacine is also sort of the center mm. of cryptozoology because you know the thylacine goes extinct in uh the 1930s more than likely you know that it's hard to confirm exactly when an animal goes extinct in the wild but the the last one in captivity died in 1936 uh named benjamin there's fairly famous huh. footage of it and sort of like the ivory-billed woodpecker you know there's sort of just like this little nothing footage of it but we look back on it now and it's so it it, it is sad it is you know the the footage takes on 
just such different yeah. meaning. Uh, just sort of regardless of the intent of the person that uh, that filmed them. And that's all that we really have of living thylacine um, Yeah. Film. Well, they're, they're, you know, well-known in Australia, right? Like, there is kind of that... Um, like legend behind it, I want to say. I, you know, they go extinct for the most part in mainland Australia. There's stories of them mm-hmm. in southern Australia, and I think they did hold out in southern Australia for quite some time, including into the time of European okay. occupation of Australia. But you know, they really yeah. hung on in Tasmania, which is why the thylacine was also called the Tasmanian tiger right, or the Tasmanian right. wolf. And the Tasmanian tiger is on the coat of arms of Aus- of uh, sorry of Tasmania. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a fairly famous animal, but um, you know, also famous for oh, yeah. going extinct. And you know, it's so it's so bizarre looking. It's so unique, and um, you know, clearly there was there was some interest in it, but also there was it was treated as a pest. It was. You know, um, it was blamed for killing um, really? sheep, which uh, was very important to the economy of Australia. Um, there's evidence now to even suggest that it wasn't really thylacine killing the sheep. Oh, oh my God. Um, <laughs> so this it might have all was, been for though. nothing. If you think about the pattern in terms of how, e- you know, people will make any excuse to just kill things, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, you you hear about that in mm-hmm. uh, out west all the time with you know them wanting to eradicate every coyote and wolf. Yeah, uh, in the west, you know, because they're they're ah uh, yeah, that's sheep. very frustrating to me because you're not supposed to be there in the first place. You know, you're messing with the with the system yeah, that's already yeah, in place. Almost, you can't you can't not expect it to yeah. fight back or at least try to adapt to what it's there. It. You know, this it's not necessarily off topic, but yeah. how do you feel about when if there's a bear that ends up getting fed on a trail and then in some cases they have to either kill it or completely remove it? How do you feel about that? Which is a bit of a loaded question. I mean, but you know, I, I was just thinking because it, it does <laughs> seem like there's always some strange measures that were taken in the past and still kind of are. Well, I mean, in the case of the bear, I mean, it. For for something like a grizzly bear, which is extremely yeah. dangerous, you know, to encounter in the wild. I mean, <laughs> that I know. I know so much effort has been put into, uh, you know, protecting them, reintroducing them. Uh, you know, there are people that yeah. have to make that tough call, and. As far as I know, they're well-informed people. There's like there is sort of a there. It, it's not it's not completely arbitrary yeah. as far as I understand it. But if a bear does sort of tick a certain amount of boxes as to how much it's interacting with humans and you know what what danger it poses to itself and other humans, you know that is a mm-hmm. extremely tough call that has to be made i think sometimes if if that bear is you know going to continue to have interactions where it puts people and other bears yeah i mean it's just i bring it up because it is another it seems like another one of those cases right where you we really can't mingle with nature just yet and still haven't 
fully figured out how to do that. You know the weird the weird thing to me though about bears and this this is uh-huh. this is slightly I don't think <laughs> we think enough about bears. Really don't. We really don't. Cuz like here's here's the thing. We talk all the time and be like, "Oh, what would it be like if like there were like monsters and there were dragons and all this <laughs> stuff?" Like, what if like we lived in a world where humanity was the same, but you know, if you went out you know, there will be monsters. And it's like, we kind of do. Yeah. You know? Big bear. Like, we, I don't, I don't think we, as you know, I know people love bears, you know, and you know, this is again, you know, sort of the charismatic megafauna that we want to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think, I feel like I went, I, I was looking back on all the times I'd been hiking in Montana and you really don't think enough about the fact that, there is a giant, incredibly fast carnivore that lives out here. And if I were to encounter it, there is a not insignificant chance I would be killed just so quickly. They are very scary. But we keep going hiking. Uh, we yeah. just kind of- <laughs> I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Yeah, is the yeah. mentality of hiking. Are there are, <sighs> are there black bears in New Jersey? In New yeah, Jersey, yeah, there's black bears. Yeah, um, they're see the thing with black bears is, I mean, granted, I'll still be scared of them, but they're yeah. relatively harmless. But they're curious. Yeah, well, because you you can scare them away with loud noises. Yeah, you just stand up and you put your hands up and you just yell. Yeah. What what's your what's what's your bear yell? What do what do you yell at a bear to scare it away? Uh, that wasn't loud enough. It's gotta be louder. But you get the idea. What's yours? What would be your bear yell? Uh, what would scare a bear? What would scare a bear? Uh, <laughs> there's no more honey. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to get their attention real quick. Oh, God. Do you want to see my fan fiction of Barry Benson? Oh, my God. Oh, um, my gosh. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, the thylacine. <laughs> um, but, yeah, people do still hold on to the idea that if you go remote enough, yeah. you will find this remnant of truly wild Australia. I mean, very similar, I think, to the the way we might feel in the united states as, yeah you know sort of this uh a, a modern country that is the result of you know english occupation i mean the the thing about the thylacine i think that's also so sad is when you think about how ancient that lineage of animals mm. was yeah and that it was the last species representing a whole group of carnivorous uh, mammals that not related to anything else that is alive. There's nothing else. There's nothing else like it. And it's gone. It's, and it's, it's just all it's, it just seems like that little extra kick in the teeth that it was, it was so unique. Yeah. And, um, and I know, mm-hmm. and I know that shouldn't matter. I know, I know we should be concerned every time every time there's these sort of unnecessary extinction events that, right. you know, but just that there's no analog to it, that mm-hmm. the thylacine is this, 
you know, an ancient marsupial predator, like, you, you, just, just, just to think that that existed in the modern world, and not that long ago, it, it, it was still running around, this, the, this legacy of, of a different time period. Yeah. And it was, it was still, like, my, my grandfather was alive, and it was still out there. Jeez. And now it's just captured on video. That and that's that really that and all these taxidermied specimens of it, mm-hmm. which by the way, people really seem to do <laughs> very poor taxidermy of it. I don't feel like we've touched on that we enough. We really haven't. All no. the taxidermy of it is very bad. Oh no. Um but yeah, that that is the only way it sort of exists now. Yeah, as a bad caricature that was reassembled. Yeah, that it's like this sort of snarling possum thing when you know you feel like it deserves some sort of dignity but i don't even know what that is no and i mean there's there's some there there's quite a bit of dna of it there's um at least i i believe there are some preserved embryos of it oh wow um you know there, there's some physical material of it left so every now and then you hear about someone wanting to clone it now there's an interesting conversation. Yeah, and you know, there's there's certainly a lot of ethical things you would have to talk about there. Is like even if that were possible, yeah. because you know this, right this is bat. a marsupial. Yeah, Th- this isn't like you know the conversation to clone a mammoth where you would have to have an elephant give birth to a half elephant, half mammoth. Is that maybe? how that goes? That is, as far <laughs> as I know, that's how they want to do it. If, okay. if they do want to um, clone a mammoth, is they would have to impregnate an elephant. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. But you know, go for it, I guess. But okay. Oh, but what is going? There's nothing that can. Um, the thylacine is, you know, so distantly. It, it's doesn't have as close of a relative as a mammoth does to an elephant. Yeah. So what would you clone it off of? I, guess? I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure people that are actually working on that would <laughs> have an explanation, but to me, yeah. that that eludes me. I think this is all very theoretical at this point, and I don't sure, think there's enough sure. DNA really for it yet. Do you remember that movie that came out such a long time ago? It was called, I think it was like Babylon AD, and it was with Vin, Vin Diesel was in it, and it's like in the future, but it's, we probably caught up to that timeline by now. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, I oh. remember 10,000 BC. Oh, that, remake that movie that I was so excited for and it was so I was so excited for that movie and I was such I was at such a young age that I remember I was making like Do you know like do you ever play with Webkins? Were you ever into that? My brother was super into it. Okay, Webkins. okay. So in Webkins, see my sister and I were really into it. But um in Webkins, you could like make your own movies. And this is how I think I knew I was so into like film and getting into <laughs> film because I was making my own movies and trying to base it off of that. Uh-huh. That is a weird memory that I've uncovered and don't know what to do with now. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 10,000 BC and Babylon AD weirdly come out around the same time. But who was, who was asking me the other day about like if mammoths really helped build the pyramids? Oh my God. <laughs> Some, someone somebody was asking asked me about that the other day. Oh wow, that's fun. I don't remember. But, I think it was like I think I'd like I brought up that whole fun fact that like there were still mammoths alive when the pyramids were being built. Wait, is that accurate? 
Yeah, yeah, because they, huh. well, they would have still been alive in North America. Yeah, I mean, they're not in Africa, but... Yeah, but... That is a weird timeline but then, to think about but it. somebody took... And I think the this shows, like, how... Why, why it's so important to contextualize <laughs> factoids. They thought, oh, did they help build the pyramids? But it'd be cool if they did. It would be cool to say if they did. That movie is a mess in general, but... I mean... For so many reasons. Oh, God, yeah. I was so, well, because I was so excited because it's like a movie about ancient history. Yeah. It's going to be great. But, it, I mean, is it? You know, it's such a topic that I find so <laughs> it, fascinating. It, well, let me, let me tell you right now, it is not. What's that one with Ron Perlman? That's like, oh, my God, I'm going to blank on the title of this movie and it's going to haunt me forever. But Ron Perlman plays an old... um uh homo sapien and they are like this is like way 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 early bce yes this movie exists i cannot remember what it's called and it will haunt me for the rest of my life but it is the strangest film i have ever seen and they don't talk ron perlman playing like a bigfoot (laughs) yes oh wait ron perlman was in a movie about a bigfoot no wait really yeah it was called um Damn it. <laughs> See, we're not doing too hot on these movie titles. Tonight. Oh, no. Ron Perlman was definitely in a movie. Did he like co-direct it or something? It was like it was one of those movies. It came out like a couple years ago and it just kind of got buried. Oh. In, um... It wasn't it wasn't Sasquatch, was it? No, that was no, no, rough. No. This was um, it was kind of a goofy romantic comedy thing. Oh, um, oh gosh, this is going to drive me crazy. Um. Hold on one second while I look on my phone and see Ron <laughs> Perlman Bigfoot movie. This is, uh, I, I, I'm glad our guests are being so patient. With oh, yes, today. absolutely. We're doing great. If you guys know these movies, please speak up and, and tell us. Pottersville. Oh. Pottersville. Now that I haven't heard of. Okay, yeah. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it good? No. Oh, well, I don't know. I was excited for a hot sec. And then I mean, OK, uh, have you ever seen um, The Hunter? No. I have okay, not. So that stars Willem Dafoe. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Keep going. Yeah, though. And Willem Dafoe is hunting the last thylacine. Wait, really? That's the plot of that movie? Yes. Oh, wow. OK, that's a bit odd. It was on Netflix a while ago. Yeah, he has like a sniper rifle and stuff. And it's like, it it just looks like it's going to be bad, though. Well, you know, it's really beautifully shot. And it's like, it's a movie that has kind of a weak plot. Yeah. But everyone in it is giving it their all. And it's kind of, it's kind of a nice movie, except it it definitely falls into some really goofy tropes. Oh. I would say it's worth watching. Okay. There's also a really cool scene where he gets this um he gets a uh a generator working and this oh. guy's house out in the middle of the woods finally has power and it this record player drops the needle now that it has power again it starts playing um I'm on fire by Bruce Springsteen. Oh, uh, well, that's kind of cool. Well, you like it cuz it's Springsteen, but that does sound kind of well, cool. Yeah, I just like it cuz there's Bruce Springsteen in it maybe. Maybe because <laughs> It has three of my favorite things in it. Willem okay. Dafoe, mm-hmm. the, you know, uh, the Green Goblin himself, mm-hmm. uh, a thylacine, and 
Bruce Springsteen in it. That's oh, it. and Australia, I guess. Oh, and um, Sam Neill. It has a lot. You know, wow, that's a hot cast. This, I feel like this movie was made for me. <laughs> yeah. And I feel bad movie, that I man. don't like it. Much. Oh, no. <laughs> You're just insulting it. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Babylon AD, the weird movie with Vin Diesel. The, yeah. it's, I have nothing to contribute aside from the fact that there's a weird subplot about cloning. Oh. Um, and I was so much more interested in that than the movie like <laughs> I, I i like that's what i remember i don't remember the plot of this movie he has to help a girl or something and who has superpowers maybe and it's a weird sci-fi plot trope thing i don't care it was not great but what was interesting was there was like a black market that happens in this film and there's like some there's a bunch of people selling different things and one of the things they were selling was it's Siberian tigers that went extinct, right? Or is it Bengal tigers? I think they're both still alive. They're still alive? Okay. Well, then in the plot line of this movie, I'm pretty sure Siberian tigers went extinct because they were cloning them. Or maybe they were endangered, so they were cloning them to have... Something along the lines of that. Gotcha, so they're cloning, gotcha. They're cloning these tigers to sell. And it's just like, huh. Now there's a thought. I mean, well... I mean, it it just sounds like a few steps removed from Tiger King now. Well, it was a lot older than that, but yeah. (laughs) It does, unfortunately, now that I'm saying it out loud. But just the concept concept of, like, getting to this point in the future where we could clone different animals to hypothetically bring them back and the ethics of that. And what does that lead to? And granted, this is a whole different conversation, but... Yeah, you know, it's yeah. just it's fascinating. Well, l- l- we, I, I can steer you back on track, Joe Exotic. Oh, yeah. Let's uh, get back on there. Speaking of uh, striped mammals that went extinct due to British colonization. Uh. The quagga. <laughs> I was going to say zebra. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say it looks like a zebra. It is a Dance. subspecies of zebra. Oh. Um, you know, it really only has uh, stripes on its neck, head, and front legs. And then the rest of its body is kind of a dark brown. I mean, this is also, you know, an animal that, you know, goes extinct in Africa. Mm. Um, the weird thing about it, you know, as opposed to the thylacine, where the thylacine would really require cloning and a way to incubate the embryo, the quagga has been the result since the 80s. There have been attempts to uh, bring the quagga back, but through breeding zebras to look like quaggas. Oh, weird. Yeah. Now, you know, you can talk about the ethics of cloning, and that is a whole conversation. For sure. This This is something that I feel more conflicted about. Yeah. Because... Not not necessarily from the ethics of it, I guess, but more of uh-huh. just like the attitude, I think. The intention was that basically they wanted to see Quagga again on the yeah. in, in these game reserves. And now it's sort of like a selling point. And uh, the, the Quagga project, which is, you know, uh, has at this point, basically, they've declared like success. We have mm-hmm. remade the Quagga. And it is now roaming the plains. And I guess I'm conflicted about it because if they're basically zebras. Yeah. Doing things that zebras were going to do anyways. 
why did you have to breed them to look a certain way? It comes off to me as just the intention comes off as very superficial. And to yeah, be totally honest, I don't think they look like Quagga. I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard to tell because there's only illustrations of Quagga. There's a couple of photographs of them and they're in black and white. Yeah, for sure. Um, but they the 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 pattern on the on their backs doesn't look quite the same. Oh no. And for them to just kind of declare success. Yes, we have rebred the quagga and reintroduced them to the wild. I don't know. There's there's something about the gesture of it that I that to me mm-hmm. and and in the mission statement of the quagga project and I'm sure there's a lot of good people that worked hard on this, but there's something very superficial about it that yeah. I feel like it just is it doesn't sit right with me. I don't I don't know how I if, if you can better elaborate that. No, it just feels disingenuous almost. Like there's something, yeah, like you said, superficial in that you're doing it for an aesthetic. Really though, because it because you would they admitted part part of their big thing about this was the thing that they really wanted to prove, their whole argument was that the quagga was not a unique species and was just a um, a, a color variant of a plain mm. zebra. Okay. So they used that as the scientific backing that these can be considered quagga because they are a, co- a color variant of a plains zebra that they have bred to have this stripe configuration. But they're not actually that, no, because- right? No, because like I, I feel like this is this is very pop science. I feel yeah. like I feel like if we were talking to a proper, credible ecologist, zoologist, someone that knew something about African um, mm-hmm. knew knew about zebras and knew about their biology, it, it, I, I just have this feeling that this. Does, this would this has very little scientific value, right? But I could see how this is a great PR stunt. Yeah, it it really does feel superficial and for the aesthetics, like it it's something that they're doing or did in order to kind of boost the look and the brand. And it, I feel I, like it's when it it almost feels like when there's a downtown revitalization project. Mm. And they build a building that is trying to look like the historic downtown building. Uh, yeah. But it's, you can tell it's just, it's just bougie lofts and yeah. it's not made quite as nice. And, and expensive. It, and it's expensive and you're like, why is this here? And that's how I look at the Quagga project. It's expensive and what is it doing is it? here? And I know it's trying to look a certain way, but it seems to be missing the point entirely. Well, again, I think this feeds the whole everything we've been talking about. It's it misses the point every single time. You know, you kill off the last great awk to put it in a museum to preserve it throughout history, but you completely miss the point, right? You're you know, you're exactly right, I think. That's um that seems to be it. I mean, because I, I think about it all of all of these animals that we've looked at and Mm -hmm. it feels like because there still is so much 
great, amazing stuff that's in the world. And I feel like if there's anything else that we can get from, you know, preserving these animals is that it's fragile and these, all these, um, we shouldn't take these amazing things for granted, but we also should be aware that of, of what our relationship is with them and how quickly they can be gone. Um, the, the last animal I wanted to talk about is a little different from all these other ones. Uh, just because it's, you know, a lot smaller, it's not a mammal or a bird, um, you know, so it doesn't, it doesn't really have that kind of connection. It's also an animal that we didn't know about for hmm. very long. And um, if you'll uh, look over here in this little jar, oh. you will see, be careful. Hmm. Oh, You being careful? Being I, careful with the jar? I'm trying and you're making me nervous. Okay. Well, that <laughs> there is a golden toad. Oh. And the, the golden toad was um, only known to live in about four square kilometers. So about uh, one and a half square miles in an area of Costa Rica. And it was living in, um, you know, this part of the rainforest. And, you know, it was... Uh, discovered in and described in 1966 and uh the last sighting of one in of one was in 1989 whoa and this uh the, the the crazy thing about it was so it goes extinct in the 80s mm. over a, a span of a couple of years um what's crazy about it was um, a photographer had been sent out to document them. And, you know, this is the 80s, so there's fairly good pho photography um, technology yeah. at this point. You know, this isn't something like the quagga, the thylacine, right. where we only have black and white photos of them. This was very recent, and you see these very, very bright, bright photographs of them. You know, it was described as, like, when they would do their, um, when they would mate, they would cover the forest floor, and there would just be tons and tons of these golden um, toads hopping wow. around. Um, and for the six-week mating period, you know, you would just see them. You would hear them singing. It was everywhere. Um, mm. They they would just gather in huge numbers uh, near these puddles, and uh, to 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 breed. Um, and uh, you know, when, you know, they're, they're, they're documented. And then over the course of a couple of years, and, you know, there's been a couple of different hypotheses as to what happened to them. You know, it could be uh, from a, uh, just a, an El Nino event that threw off their breeding for a couple of years and that just mm -hmm. sort of spelled their doom. Or right. it could have been a fungal infection. Um, oh, wow which uh, amphibians are super susceptible to. Uh, so no one's really quite sure where to put the blame as to how it died, but it did die very yeah. quickly o over the course of a couple of years. They went from being, you know, you would see just the forest floor covered in them to a couple of individuals and then just one is seen. 
Wow. And then they're gone forever. <laughs> Jeez. And I think to me that really that really hits at home how how quickly this can happen and that it can happen in the modern day. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily always relate to human intervention, right? It's not necessarily always going yeah. to be human caused. Things do happen. And I think that's why it's important too that we document and continue to search, but also respect. So instead of kind of constantly repeating this history of intervening and destroying, I think it is worth intervening at times and maybe in this case to at least have known something about it before this just disaster happens to an entire species. But to treat that with respect and to be careful, to go out into the wild with the field recorders and cameras and actually document, but not necessarily take that object back, not having mm -hmm. to kill something to put it on display, at least in, the, in this horribly aggressive way that we've seen, you know, with the great auk and with the dodo and other things, you know, it just treating wildlife with the respect that it deserves and maybe eventually trying to get to this point of some sort of harmony eventually. Yeah. Would be kind of nice. It would be nice. Wouldn't it be nice if we were older <laughs> and we didn't have to wait so long? How long till uh, we get copyright struck? How long do I have? Uh, you got about 15 seconds, but... Mm, okay. That's probably... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks for uh, following us down to the uh, uh, vertebrate storage room of the... Uh, uncanny county museum uh, uh we could do with a renovation down here yeah yeah i think it's it's the definitely taxidermy could be spruced up yeah let's hope it doesn't take seven years though but yeah. but yeah thank you so much zan for taking us on this tour of of this exhibit and and with your vast knowledge on it because i definitely yeah. learned something and i hope um all of you attending our tour did as well and you know, thank you so much again for coming and Yeah, we do we do really appreciate uh you coming to uh our museum and listening to us. We know it's hard to get out and enjoy museums in times like these. So we really appreciate you following us around here at the Uncanny County Museum. And we hope we can uh see you again soon. If, uh, you know, if it's after hours here at the museum, you can find me on Instagram at Xanosaurus. And me on Instagram is at Art. All right, we'll see you next time. Get out of here. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>